Section 59 of Volume 1E of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Greg Golding. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume, Volume 1E, Section 59, Chapter 61, Part 6. During these transactions, great demonstrations of mutual friendship and regard passed between the French king and the protector. Lord Falkenberg, Cromwell's son-in-law, was dispatched to Louis, then in the camp before Dunkirk, and was received with the regard usually paid to foreign princes by the French court. Mazarin sent to London his nephew Mancini, along with the Duke of Crecy, and expressed his regret that his urgent affairs should deprive him of the honour which he had long wished for, of paying in person his respects to the greatest man in the world. The protector reaped little satisfaction from the success of his arms abroad. The situation in which he stood at home kept him in perpetual uneasiness and inquietude. His administration, so expensive both by military enterprises and secret intelligence, had exhausted his revenue and involved him in a considerable debt. The royalists, he heard, had renewed their conspiracies for a general insurrection, and Ormond was secretly come over with a view of concerting measures for the execution of this project. Lord Fairfax, Sir William Waller, and many heads of the Presbyterians had secretly entered into the engagement. Even the army was infected with the general spirit of discontent, and some sudden and dangerous eruption was every moment to be dreaded from it. No hopes remained, after his violent breach with the last Parliament, that he should ever be able to establish, with general consent, a legal settlement, or temper the military with any mixture of civil authority. All his arts and policy were exhausted, and having so often, by fraud and false pretenses, deceived every party, and almost every individual, he could no longer hope, by repeating the same professions, to meet with equal confidence and regard. However zealous the royalists, their conspiracy took not effect. Willis discovered the whole to the protector. Ormond was obliged to flee, and he deemed himself fortunate to have escaped so vigilant an administration. Great numbers were thrown into prison. A high court of justice was anew erected for the trial of those criminals whose guilt was most apparent. Notwithstanding the recognition of his authority by the last Parliament, the protector could not as yet trust to an unbiased jury. Sir Henry Slingsby and Dr. Hewett were condemned and beheaded. Mordaunt, brother to the Earl of Peterborough, narrowly escaped. The numbers for his condemnation and his acquittal were equal, and just as the sentence was pronounced in his favour, Colonel Pride, who was resolved to condemn him, came into court. Ashton, Storey, and Bestley were hanged in different streets of the city. The conspiracy of the millenarians in the army struck Cromwell with still greater apprehensions. Harrison and the other discarded officers of that party could not remain at rest. Stimulated equally by revenge, by ambition, and by conscience, they still harbored in their breasts some desperate project, and there wanted not officers in the army who, from like motives, were disposed to second all their undertakings. The levellers and agitators had been encouraged by Cromwell to impose with their advice in all political deliberations, and he had even pretended to honor many of them with his intimate friendship, while he conducted his daring enterprises against the King and the Parliament. It was a usual practice with him, in order to familiarize himself the more with the agitators, who were commonly corporals or sergeants, 
to take them to bed with him and there after prayers and exhortations to discuss together their projects and principles political as well as religious having assumed the dignity of protector he excluded them from all his counsels and had neither leisure nor inclination to indulge them any further in their wonted familiarities among those who were enraged at this treatment was sexby an active agitator who now employed against him all that restless industry which had formerly been exerted in his favour he even went so far as to enter into a correspondence with spain and cromwell who knew the distempers of the army was justly afraid of some mutiny to which a day an hour an instant might provide leaders of assassinations likewise he was apprehensive from the zealous spirit which actuated the soldiers cindercombe had undertaken to murder him and by the most unaccountable accidents had often been prevented from executing his bloody purpose his design was discovered but the protector could never find the bottom of the enterprise nor detect any of his accomplices he was tried by a jury and notwithstanding the general odium attending that crime notwithstanding the clear and full proof of his guilt so little conviction prevailed of the protector's right to the supreme government it was with the utmost difficulty that this conspirator was condemned when every thing was prepared for his execution he was found dead from poison as is supposed which he had voluntarily taken the protector might better have supported these fears and apprehensions which the public distempers occasioned had he enjoyed any domestic satisfaction or possessed any cordial friend of his own family in whose bosom he could safely have unloaded his anxious and corroding cares but fleetwood his son-in-law actuated by the wildest zeal began to estrange himself from him and was enraged to discover that cromwell in all his enterprises had entertained views of promoting his own grandeur more than of encouraging piety and religion of which he made such fervent professions his eldest daughter married to fleetwood had adopted republican principles so vehement that she could not with patience behold power lodged in a single person even in her indulgent father his other daughters were no less prejudiced in favour of the royal cause and regretted the violences and iniquities into which they thought their family had so unhappily been transported above all the sickness of mrs claypole his peculiar favourite the lady endued with many humane virtues and amiable accomplishments depressed his anxious mind and poisoned all his enjoyments she had entertained a high regard for dr hewitt lately executed and being refused his pardon the melancholy of her temper increased by her distempered body had prompted her to lament to her father all his sanguinary measures and urge him to compunction for those heinous crimes into which his fatal ambition had betrayed him her death which followed soon after gave new edge to every word which she had uttered all composure of mind was now forever fled from the protector he felt that the grandeur which he had attained with so much guilt and courage could not ensure him that tranquillity which it belongs to virtue alone and moderation fully to ascertain overwhelmed with the load of public affairs dreading perpetually some fatal accident in his distempered government seeing nothing around him but treacherous friends or enraged enemies possessing the confidence of no party resting his title on no principle civil or religious he found his power to depend on so delicate a poise of factions and interests as the smallest event was able without any preparation in a moment to overturn death too which with such signal intrepidity he had braved in the field being incessantly threatened by the poniards of fanatical or 
interested assassins, was ever present to his terrified apprehension, and haunted him in every scene of business or repose. Each action of his life betrayed the terrors under which he labored. The aspect of strangers was uneasy to him. With a piercing and anxious eye, he surveyed every face to which he was not daily accustomed. He never moved a step without strong guards attending him. He wore armor under his clothes, and further secured himself by offensive weapons, a sword, falchion, and pistols, which he always carried about him. He returned from no place by the direct road or by the same way which he went. Every journey he performed with hurry and precipitation. Seldom he slept above three nights together in the same chamber, and he never let it be known beforehand what chamber he intended to choose, nor entrusted himself in any which was not provided with back doors, at which sentinels were carefully placed. Society terrified him, while he reflected on his numerous unknown and implacable enemies. Solitude astonished him, by withdrawing that protection which he found so necessary for his security. His body, also from the contagion of his anxious mind, began to be affected, and his health seemed sensibly to decline. He was seized with a slow fever, which changed to a tertian ague. For the space of a week no dangerous symptoms appeared, and in the intervals of the fits he was able to walk abroad. At length the fever increased, and he himself began to entertain some thoughts of death, and to cast his eye towards that future existence whose idea had once been intimately present to him though since, in the hurry of affairs and the shock of wars and factions, it had, no doubt, been considerably obliterated. He asked Goodwin, one of his preachers, if the doctrine were true, that the elect could never fall or suffer a final reprobation. Nothing more certain, replied the preacher, than I am safe, said the protector, for I am sure that once I was in a state of grace. His physicians were sensible of the perilous condition to which his distemper had reduced him, but his chaplains, by their prayers, visions, and revelations, so buoyed up his hopes that he began to believe his life out of all danger. A favorable answer, it was pretended, had been returned by heaven to the petitions of all the godly, and he relied on their asseverations much more than on the opinion of the most experienced physicians. I tell you, he cried with confidence to the latter, I tell you, I shall not die of this distemper. I am well assured of my recovery. It is promised by the Lord, not only to my supplications, but to those of men who hold a stricter commerce and more intimate correspondence with him. Ye may have skill in your profession, but nature can do more than all the physicians in the world, and God is far above nature. Nay, to such a degree of madness did their enthusiastic assurances mount, that upon a fast day, which was observed on his account both at Hampton Court and at Whitehall, they did not so much pray for his health as give thanks for the undoubted pledges which they had received of his recovery. He himself was overheard offering up his addresses to heaven, and so far had the illusions of fanaticism prevailed over the plainest dictates of natural morality, that he assumed more the character of a mediator, in interceding for his people, than of a criminal whose atrocious violation of social duty had, from every tribunal, human and divine, merited the severest vengeance. Meanwhile, all the symptoms began to wear a more fatal aspect, and the physicians were obliged to break silence, and to declare that the protector could not survive the next fit with which he was threatened. The council was alarmed. A deputation was sent to know his will with regard to his successor. His senses were gone, and he could not now express his intentions. They asked him whether he did not mean that his eldest son Richard should succeed him in the protectorship. 
a simple affirmative was or seemed to be extorted from him soon after on the third of september that very day which he had always considered as the most fortunate for him he expired a violent tempest which immediately succeeded his death served as a subject of discourse to the vulgar his partisans as well as his enemies were fond of remarking this event and each of them endeavoured by forced inferences to interpret it as a confirmation of their particular prejudices the writers attached to the memory of this wonderful person make his character with regard to abilities bear the air of the most extravagant panegyric his enemies form such a representation of his moral qualities as resembles the most virulent invective both of them it must be confessed are supported by such striking circumstances in his conduct and fortune as bestow on their representation a great air of probability what can be more extraordinary it is said than that a person of private birth and education no fortune no eminent qualities of body which have sometimes no shining talents of mind which have often raised men to the highest dignities should have the courage to attempt and the abilities to execute so great a design as the subverting one of the most ancient and best established monarchies in the world that he should have the power and boldness to put his prince and master to an open and infamous death should banish that numerous and strongly allied family cover all these temerities under a seeming obedience to a parliament in whose service he pretended to be retained trample too upon that parliament in their turn and scornfully expel them as soon as they gave him ground of dissatisfaction erect in their place the dominion of the saints and give reality to the most visionary idea which the heated imagination of any fanatic was ever able to entertain suppress again that monster in its infancy and openly set himself above all things that ever were called sovereign in england overcome first all his enemies by arms and all his friends afterwards by artifice serve all parties patiently for a while and command them victoriously at last overrun each corner of the three nations and subdue with equal facility both the riches of the south and the poverty of the north be feared and courted by all foreign princes and be adopted a brother to the gods of the earth call together parliaments with a word of his pen and scatter them again with the breath of his mouth reduce to subjection a warlike and discontented nation by means of a mutinous army command a mutinous army by means of seditious and factious officers be humbly and daily petitioned that he would be pleased at the rate of millions a year to be hired as master of those who had hired him before to be their servant have the estates and lives of three nations as much at his disposal as was once the little inheritance of his father and be as noble and liberal in the spending of them and lastly for there is no end of enumerating every particular of his glory with one word bequeath all this power and splendor to his posterity he possessed of peace at home and triumph abroad be buried among kings and with more than regal solemnity and leave a name behind him not to be extinguished but with the whole world which as it was too little for his praise so might it have been for his conquests if the short line of his mortal life could have stretched out to the extent of his immortal designs my intention is not to disfigure this picture drawn by so masterly a hand i shall only endeavour to remove from it somewhat of the marvellous a circumstance which on all occasions gives much ground for doubt and suspicion it seems to me 
the circumstance of cromwell's life in which his abilities are principally discovered is his rising from a private station in opposition to so many rivals so much talented before him to a high command and authority in the army his great courage his signal military talents his eminent dexterity and address were all requisite for this important acquisition yet will not this promotion appear the effect of supernatural abilities when we consider that fairfax himself a private gentleman who had not the advantage of a seat in parliament had through the same steps attained even a superior rank and if endued with common capacity and penetration had been able to retain it to incite such an army to rebellion against the parliament required no uncommon art or industry to have kept them in obedience had been the more difficult enterprise when the breach was once formed between the military and civil parties a supreme and absolute authority from that moment is devolved on the general and if he be afterwards pleased to employ artifice or policy it may be regarded on most occasions as great condescension if not as superfluous caution that cromwell was ever able really to blind or overreach either the king or the republicans does not appear as they possessed no means of resisting the force under his command they were glad to temporize with him and by seeming to be deceived wait for opportunities of freeing themselves from his dominion if he seduced the military fanatics it is to be considered that their interest and his evidently concurred that their ignorance and low education exposed them to the grossest imposition and that he himself was at bottom as frantic and enthusiast as the worst of them and in order to obtain their confidence needed but to display those vulgar and ridiculous habits which he had early acquired and on which he set so high a value an army is so forcible and at the same time so coarse a weapon that any hand which wields it may without much dexterity perform any operation and attain any ascendant in human society the domestic administration of cromwell though it discovers great abilities was conducted without any plan either of liberty or arbitrary power perhaps his difficult situation admitted of neither his foreign enterprises though full of intrepidity were pernicious to national interest and seemed more the result of impetuous fury or narrow prejudices than of cool foresight and deliberation an eminent personage however he was in many respects and even a superior genius but unequal and irregular in his operations and though not defective in any talent except that of elocution the abilities which in him were most admirable and which most contributed to his marvellous success were the magnanimous resolution of his enterprises and his peculiar dexterity in discovering the characters and practising on the weaknesses of mankind if we survey the moral character of cromwell with that indulgence which is due to the blindness and infirmities of the human species we shall not be inclined to load his memory with such violent reproaches as those which his enemies usually throw upon it amidst the passions and prejudices of that period that he should prefer the parliamentary to the royal cause will not appear extraordinary since even at present some men of sense and knowledge are disposed to think that the question with regard to the justice of the quarrel may be regarded as doubtful and uncertain the murder of the king the most atrocious of all his actions was to him covered under a mighty cloud of republican and fanatical illusions and it is not impossible but that he might believe it as many others did the most meritorious action that he could perform his subsequent usurpation was the effect of necessity as well of ambition 
nor is it easy to see how the various factions could at that time have been restrained without a mixture of military and arbitrary authority the private deportment of cromwell as a son a husband a father a friend is exposed to no considerable censure if it does not rather merit praise and upon the whole his character does not appear more extraordinary and unusual by the mixture of so much absurdity with so much penetration than by his tempering such violent ambition and such enraged fanaticism with so much regard to justice and humanity cromwell was in the fifty-ninth year of his age when he died he was of a robust frame of body and of a manly though not of an agreeable aspect he left only two sons richard and henry and three daughters one married to general fleetwood another to lord Fauconberg, a third to lord rich his father died when he was very young his mother lived till after he was protector, and contrary to her orders, he buried her with great pomp in Westminster Abbey. She could not be persuaded that his power or person was ever in safety. At every noise which she heard, she exclaimed that her son was murdered, and was never satisfied that he was alive if she did not receive frequent visits from him. She was a decent woman, and by her frugality and industry had raised and educated a numerous family upon a small fortune. She had even been obliged to set up a brewery at Huntingdon, which she managed to good advantage. Hence Cromwell, in the invectives of that age, is often stigmatized with the name of the brewer. Ludlow, by way of insult, mentions the greatest accession which he would receive to his royal revenues upon his mother's death, who possessed a jointure of sixty pounds a year upon his estate. She was of a good family of the name of Stuart, remotely allied, as is by some supposed, to the royal family. End of section 59, chapter 61, part 6. Recording by Greg Golding, Georgetown, Ontario, Canada.